0: As is normally the case on the second Sunday night of every month, we're going to look at questions that have been submitted by members of the congregation over the past several months. We've only been able to get one question in each of these lessons because of the scope of them. So tonight I thought I'd better back up and try to cover several that have been sitting on the back burner for a few months. And I think we're going to be able to get to four or five this evening that we can answer briefly. Just to remind you, if you'd like to have a question dealt with, All you have to do, there's a slip of paper back on the little phone stand by my office door. You can fill that out, drop it in the box that's right outside my office door, and I will more than happily deal with that question in one of our sessions, or if it's not appropriate to deal with it then, or I don't think I'll get to it, I will write a response to you. Of course, that means you have to put your name on it if you want to get a written response, if I can't ever get to it, so make sure you do that. Also, just so everyone knows... I trust that we all recognize that when we have these sessions of questions and answers, this is not because I am somehow the answer man. It's not because I think I have all the answers to all the possible questions out there, but rather because the Bible has all the answers. And I think we can take questions that have Bible answers and go to the Bible and find out what God has to say about them. And yet I recognize that my study might be limited. I might be incorrect about something. So if any of these questions, as we answer these and look at what the Bible says... You think I missed something, a verse that I didn't take into account, or maybe misunderstood? Please feel free to come talk with me. I'd love to study the Word of God and have a more complete understanding of what God's Word says about any of these things. Let's delve right into the questions. The very first one that we're going to be dealing with tonight is if God commanded Israel not to kill, then why did He allow and, in fact, help them physically destroy their enemies? You can look in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20... In verse 13, one of the Ten Commandments, God said very explicitly, you shall not murder. Of course, if you have the old King James, I think it just says, thou shalt not kill. Yet, we can take a look over at passages like 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 3, the God who wrote those Ten Commandments that said, you shall not kill, in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 3, told the Israelites now... Go and strike Amalek, and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so there is a seeming inconsistency here. On the one hand, he tells Israelites, don't kill. And then in another passage, he tells them, now I want you to go kill these people. And in fact, I'm going to help you overcome. This is, I'm going to be with you, and we're going to destroy this entire people. So why... This seeming inconsistency. I think as we look at the Scripture, we'll find that the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not kill, you shall not murder. And yet, within that statement, God was not condemning every single solitary form of killing. For instance, go back to Exodus. This time, look in Exodus chapter 21. Interestingly, in my Bible, it's the very same page as we find the statement, You shall not murder. We can look in Exodus chapter 21, the very next chapter. And God says some things about killing. In Exodus chapter 21, we'll begin in verse 12. "...He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die." He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. As you look at these verses, you'll find that there are three different kinds of killing that take place here, two of which are allowed and are not considered violations of the law. One that's not a violation is if there was an accidental killing. If someone was not lying in wait, they didn't have enmity or anger in their heart, but accidentally killed. Say they were out in the woods chopping wood down and the, the, the axe head flies off the axe and hits a guy and kills him. That's accidental. God said, you won't kill that man. He won't be put to death. That wasn't, that's not against God's law. In fact, in Numbers chapter 25, God provides the cities of refuge for that man to flee to, to await his trial. And so that was not that God wanted people dying in that way, but it wasn't considered unlawful and it was not a violation of God's law. Yet, at the same time, we have a second kind of killing that not only was allowed, but in this passage is commanded. And that was putting someone to death for violating God's law, for for punishment. If someone murdered someone else out of enmity, out of planning, out of strife, and they killed someone, they were then themselves to be put to death. And that was considered perfectly within the realm of God's law. That was not considered a violation of this commandment that we find in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. We recognize that God did not consider it a violation for an accidental death and He did not consider it a violation for when death was meted out as a punishment for violating God's law. I want you to look back again in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 15, We read verse 3 where God said, go destroy Amalek, but back up to verse 2 and notice what it says. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. When God was helping His children destroy these enemies... This was not just some case of enmity or hatred or we don't like them. This was an issue of punishment. And in fact, in every case when God was with the children of Israel, whether it was while they were cleansing the land of Canaan as they were coming in, or while they were throughout their reign when God helped them overcome people, it was always as a tool of His vengeance and punishment on a sinful nation. Remember what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35, there God said, Vengeance is mine and retribution. God, as the ultimate and supreme sovereign of our world, has the right to mete out vengeance on those who disobey Him and those nations that do not serve Him. And as the one who has that right and that reserved right, it is only His right. He at times used His people as His tool of vengeance on the other nations that were not submitting to His will. And even at times, used those other nations as His tool of vengeance on His own people when they were not submissive to God. We recognize that God has the right to vengeance and retribution and punishment. And when He takes that right and uses that right, it is not a violation of God's law. How can God on the one hand say, Thou shalt not kill, but on the other hand say, Go kill? He's dealing with two different types of killing. One was out of the issue of hatred, enmity, strife, laying in wait to just end someone's life. The other was an issue of punishment for sin as God's means and tool of vengeance. And so there is not an inconsistency. God's law is not violated, but rather He's talking about two different things in these two passages. Question number two. Job 1 and verse 6. In Job 1 and verse 6, why was Satan with the angels coming into the presence of God? In Job chapter 1 and verse 6 it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The first thing that we need to recognize is that there is a possibility that sons of God here does not refer to angels. If we look back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 2. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 2. We'll begin at verse 1. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. The sons of God took wives for themselves out of the daughters of men. Here's that phrase, sons of God. Does that refer to angels? It cannot refer to angels. If you look in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, God tells us something about the angels. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, as Jesus was answering the Sadducees and their question about being married after the resurrection, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30 that those who are in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. If they never marry or are given in marriage and are like angels in heaven, what's that mean about the angels? They neither marry nor are given in marriage. We go back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, These sons of God took wives. They married. What's that mean? They're not angels. I believe that the sons of God there in Genesis 6 simply refers to children of God. Those who were following after God intermarried with those who were not following after God. But the reason why we've looked at this is to recognize that the phrase sons of God does not necessarily refer to angels. So there is a possibility that in Job chapter 1 and verse 6, when it says that Satan presented himself before God among the sons of God, that it may not be referring to the angels at all, but rather just the idea we've already read, and if we had read verses 1-5, through we would have read where Job worshipped God, where he offered up sacrifices to God for for his sons and his daughters in case they had sinned. Here is a son of God presenting himself before God. And it may just simply be that at a day when these men who served God were presenting themselves before God, Satan also did. However, we also... Have to look at Job chapter 38 and verse 7. In Job chapter 38 and verse 7, we find that the phrase sons of God most certainly refers to angels or spiritual beings of some sort. Because in Job chapter 38, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I'll ask you and you instruct me. Verse 4. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? There weren't any men there when the foundations of the earth were being laid, and so sons of God here most certainly refers to some kind of spiritual being that was there before men, angels possibly. And so, having gone through all of that, All we learn then is that it's possible that sons of God in Job 1 doesn't refer to angels, but then again it's possible that it does. And we just really don't know. Job chapter 1 and verse 6, the problem that we most often have as we consider this, or at least the problem I know I've had when I first began studying Job and I see Satan coming into the presence of God with possibly the angels, my first thought is, if God won't allow sin in heaven, how does Satan get to be there? And I think that's the problem we have. However, I go back and I read Job chapter 1 and verse 6, and I find out that it doesn't say anything about where this presentation took place. It just said that it's before God. And so whether these sons of God are men or angels, it doesn't tell us where. In fact, that might cause us to think for a moment, hmm, when I'm thinking about an omnipresent God and I'm also thinking about spiritual beings, I probably can't think about a place where they present themselves before God like I might talk to you about a place where we might meet for lunch. When we're talking about spiritual beings, speaking of place seems to me to be a little out of place. Perhaps our problem here is that we're thinking with our mindset and what it means that if I present myself before you, and not thinking about the fact that these are spiritual beings, and and really all it tells us is that somehow Satan was able to communicate to God. Why did God allow that? I don't know. But I tell you, I am glad that I can see this passage here but because it allows me to know some things about Satan and about his abilities and what he can do because I believe Satan is real. He's alive and he is roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But this glimpse into the relationship between Satan and God and Satan and us provides me with a great deal of comfort. Because from this text, even though I don't know why God allows it, even though I don't know where it took place, I do learn some things about Satan. If Satan wants to attack me, he's limited by God. He doesn't just get to attack me wholesale however he wants. He can only go to the extent that God allows him. I remember what it says in First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. In First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, Paul assures us, "No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure." I can recognize that this statement is clearly true because I go to an example where J- Satan was wanting to attack one of God's followers and he couldn't just do it. He had to go get permission. And then he couldn't go beyond what God would allow. And God assures us, I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Further, I think about Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 38. Paul says this in Romans 8 and verse 38. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan wanted to separate Job from God. And he was unable to do it. And I can learn from this verse, Job 1 and verse 6, and the others like it in that book, even if I can't answer all the questions, there's some great things I can learn. That Satan does not have all power. He cannot take me away from God as long as I continue to lean faithfully on Him, no matter what He does. And He cannot do more than I am able to handle because God will not let him. Why was He there among the angels? If it was the angels, I don't know. What we learn from it is that God allows Satan to communicate with him in some way, but I sure am glad to get to see that example because I see what the passage says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, Romans 8.38, and I see it happening in Job chapter 1, verse 6 and following. And so I appreciate that question because I think it helps us find some comfort for our lives. The person who submitted this question must have been reading Job chapter 1 because they also submitted this one. In Job chapter 1... God called Job perfect and upright. The thought only Jesus was perfect. Why does He say this? Job chapter 1, verse 8, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered My servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. One of the problems that we have with this passage is one of translation. The King James Version and several others say perfect. I think there's one translation that even says without sin. The New American Standard and some others say blameless. But what exactly does the word here mean? The Hebrew word is the word tongue. And it means complete, usually morally pious, specifically gentle, dear. means coupled together, perfect, plain, undefiled, or upright. This Hebrew word, tom, is used in the Old Testament 13 times. The New Testament counterpart, the Greek counterpart, nemptos, uh, uh, I believe is the word, is used in the New Testament 7 times. But here's something very interesting. Out of those 20 times to be found in Scripture, not once is this word ever used in reference to Jesus, our Savior. Which brings us to the second issue about this. Is that part of the problem is is that whenever we see the word perfect, we carry with it some ideas. We know that Jesus is the only person to have lived sinlessly past the age of accountability. And so, whenever we find in any of the translations the word perfect, we automatically take with us to that passage, Oh, Jesus, because Jesus was sinless, therefore perfect. But not every time we find a word that can be translated perfect is it referring to Jesus or to the characteristic about Jesus. In fact, this word is never used to refer to Jesus with whatever it means. Never once. I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't complete. I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't undefiled or upright. I'm just saying this particular word is never used in reference to Jesus. How is this word used? I believe what we find is not a word that's used in an absolute sense, not a word or a phrase that's used to describe somebody who is absolutely perfect, as in never, ever having sinned. Because clearly Job was not that kind of person. But rather, what we see as we go through the Scripture and the various places where it's used, is that it's most often used as a contrast term. Used to describe those who are right with God because they're faithfully obeying Him versus those who live a life of sin and wickedness who don't serve God. In fact, we'll notice in Job chapter 8 and verse 20, in Job chapter 8 and verse 20, Bildad uses the phrase. In Job 8 and verse 20, Bildad says, Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity. There's our word. Nor will he support the evildoer. Do you see the contrast? He won't reject this man, and he won't support an evildoer. Job, in his response in chapter 9 and verse 22, as he is responding to Bildad, he says in Job 9 and verse 22, it's all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. Guiltless, there is our same word here. See the contrast. There are those who are living in sin, but then there are those who are striving to serve God, and Job says God's destroying them both. But you'll notice that he's using it as a contrast. Look in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 10. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 10, the proverbialist says, Men of bloodshed hate the blameless. There's our word again. But the upright are concerned for his life. We've got the contrast. Men of bloodshed. Versus the blameless. There are those who are given over to doing wicked things, that's their life, but then there's the blameless, those who are serving God faithfully and doing His will. We can look at a New Testament passage and go to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, we find New Testament counterpart. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul says, "...so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent." Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. What do we find? We find a contrast. We find those who are faithfully serving God according to His will, striving to do His will, not that they don't ever sin, but when they sin, because they are servants and striving to submit to God, God's grace Cleanses those sins, and that's the kind of man that Job was—a man who served God, that followed His law, and because he was a su- submissive servant, the sins he did commit, God washed away as he repented of those. We recognize that. In fact, look at how this term is used in First Thessalonians chapter three and verse fifteen, as it describes what in Je- verse thirteen, excuse me, as it describes what Jesus does for us. Let's back up to verse eleven. 1 Thessalonians three eleven. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Without blame. It's our same word here, the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew word found in Job chapter 1 and verse 8. What does it say? That God establishes us without blame. It's by His grace that we ultimately have this standing before God. Because, absolutely, we've all sinned. None of us could claim this word for ourselves, absolutely. However, those who serve God and submit to His will, faithfully following His law, obeying Him, God's grace washes their sins away, and we are established without blame, above reproach before God. And of course, that causes us to shine out His lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. How can God say Job is perfect? Not because Job was just like Jesus and never ever sinned, but because Job, unlike the majority of the world, was a faithful servant. And because of that, His grace, God's grace, washed Job's sins away. Question four. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, if the earth was without form and void, how did God move upon the face of the waters? If I understand this question properly, I think the point is that if the earth had no form, how could there be waters and the face of waters? That would mandate some kind of form. Well, let's go back and look. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Notice in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, God created something. Heavens and the earth. But then it describes those heavens and earth. It says formless, void, dark. Those are the three things that it wants us to understand about this creation. Formless, void, dark. And dark. But there was something there. God had brought something into existence, and there God was with it. And then in the verses that follow, Moses writes how God took what was formless, void, and dark, and brought light, form, and life into it. When it's written that the earth was formless and void, the point is not that there was nothing there. The point is not that it did not take some kind of shape. The point is, is that when God first brought substance into existence, it didn't look like it does now. There was not order in it as there is order now. There was not life in it as there is now. It was void. And there was not light in it as there is now. It was dark. But then God produced light. He formed it with order. And He filled it with life. And that's what we find throughout Genesis chapter 1. To help us understand this, look at Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 23. In Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 23. Jeremiah in a vision, he says in Jeremiah 4 and verse 23, "...I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light." Jeremiah is going back and borrowing from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 as he's saying, "...I looked out at this vision and notice what I saw. An earth that was formless, void, and dark." But then notice how he goes on to describe it in verses 24-26. through I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before His fierce anger. Jeremiah is describing a judgment of God coming upon the earth, and he says, what, what happens when God gets that angry? The earth becomes Formless, void, and dark. Doesn't mean there's nothing there. What it means is, is it no longer has the order. It no longer is filled with life. And it no longer has the light. Now, obviously, I understand he's speaking here much more figuratively than Moses was speaking in Genesis chapter 1. And yet notice, Jeremiah can take this phrase and can apply it to an earth that looks a lot like ours, but it's just shaking and quaking. Why? Because when he's pointing out that it was formless, the idea is it doesn't have the order that we're used to. It's unstable. Earthquake after earthquake, shaking out because of the fierce anger of God. It's void. Why is it void? Because they've all fled from the presence of this angry God. There's no more man on the face of the earth. Even the birds have fled. The fruitful vegetation has been wiped out and is desolate. It's void. It's empty. And it's without light. And so we find that when God said that the Earth was formless, void, without light, He wasn't saying that there wasn't anything there. He's not saying that there was absolutely nothing at all that, that wasn't taking any shape. It's rather a comparative thing. The folks to whom He was writing, they were used to a form. They were used to a filled earth with life, with light. And Moses was just pointing out that before all this began, God brought substance into existence and it didn't have the order that it has now. It didn't have the life that it has now. didn't have the life that it had now. But the substance was there. God was there moving on the surface of the waters. And then, in verse 3, He says, Let there be light. And the creation of the world as we know it, with form, filled with life, and with light, came into existence as God formed it and filled it. Question 5. Final question. If a good work is only one sanctioned by the Bible, does that make other works outside of the church sinful? For instance, working at a homeless shelter, volunteering for March of Dimes, etc. This question has come out of one of the lessons that we've had regarding authority and the work of the church. And we've learned from passages such as 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17, that if we're going to do what's right before God, we have to find authority for it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17, the scripture says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What do we learn from these passages? We learn that We go to the Scripture and we find equipping for good works. We're not looking for condemnation. We don't say that we get to do whatever we want unless it's specifically condemned. We're looking for the Scripture to say that we are allowed to do something. We learned that again this morning as we looked at Uzzah and him, the way they transported the ark. God had not said they could do it that way. He had provided. He had equipped for a way and they were doing it differently. So we've learned. Whatever we do, we've got to go to the scripture. We've got to find equipping for that. As we've talked about the church, we've looked at passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul said, In case I am delayed, I write, so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And we've learned what's the church's role. The church's role, the church's job, the church's mission and duty is to teach, to get the truth out, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we've learned from that is that the church should not be distracted from its mission by doing all kinds of social work, by getting involved, Involved in all these other issues like soup kitchens and welfare benefits and and all those kinds of things because that's not our job. Our job is to support the truth, to hold it up, to get the gospel out for others to see. The only exception we find to that in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 beginning at verse 27. It says in Acts 11 verse 27, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea, and this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Here were the church in Antioch taking up a collection and sending, excuse me, sending funds to the church in Jerusalem to help with the brethren who are in need. We can look at Acts chapter 6. Find something similar. In Acts chapter 6, we recognize that the Jerusalem church had widows who were in need. In Acts chapter 6, because of the problem there, it says in Acts 6.1, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And then they set up men within the congregation to oversee this work. Clearly, the church was taking care of this. This benevolence, this welfare for brethren, not for the world in general. And so we recognize that the church's work, the church's role is to get the gospel out, to teach it. The only thing in their work that is different from that is the fact that as far as societal welfare, benevolence, is about brethren, about those who are children of God, helping them. And that's all we can find in Scripture. And so someone says, well, what does that mean about apart from the church? Apart from the church, can I as an individual be involved in benevolence things, and, in societal welfare? Can I volunteer at a homeless shelter or, or work for the March of Dimes or, or give money to the American Cancer Association? I believe we most certainly can. Keep in mind what we've been talking about when we talk about the church's role is what the congregation does. But we need to understand that the individual and the congregation are not the same. Yes, I know that the congregation is not the building. It's the collection of people. But it's just that. It's the collection of people. And what we do together as a group is what the church does. What I do on my own as an individual is me. It is not the church doing it. I am doing it. If I got together with Don. And Don and I decided we wanted to do something. That's still not the church. That may be a couple of Christians. We may even get 10, 15, or 20 folks here. And we might be doing something together. We had good supper last night. But was that the church doing that? We didn't take any money out of the church's treasury? The elders weren't planning that? Individuals planned that to help out with Brad and Nicole and their shower whole bunch of people. In fact, everybody was invited. But the church wasn't planning it. The church wasn't providing for it. It wasn't the work of the church. It was something that individual Christians were doing. And so we recognize a distinction there and a difference. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, the Bible says, "...so then..." While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Paul here is speaking to individual Christians. We recognize that because in verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we'll reap if we don't grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. As he's writing to individual Christians, he's talking to them about doing good. He says, do good to all people. Do good things to all people especially the household of faith. Certainly as individual Christians, we have a greater responsibility to our brethren to do good and to help out and to perform benevolence for them and serve them. But Galatians 6 and verse 10 demonstrates that we have a responsibility for all. This passage does not speak to congregations. It does not provide for congregations to do things that are just benevolent for our society or to set up good work society or or those kind of things. But it does demonstrate that individual Christians are supposed to do good to all people And we're allowed to do that. Does that mean I can do good by feeding somebody who's homeless? I certainly can. Can I provide volunteer time for folks who have particular kinds of diseases? I most certainly can. Here's the thing that we need to recognize. When we're debating and discussing these issues of good works and the church's work, we're not arguing about whether or not it's a good work to feed the homeless. We're not arguing about whether or not it's a good work to support those who are in need, who have cancer or diabetes or muscular dystrophy. We're not arguing about that. The real debate is not, are those good works? The real debate is, who is supposed to accomplish those good works? Has God said that the church is supposed to do that? He hasn't. The church is supposed to be an institution that supports the gospel. We're a teacher of truth. But individual Christians, as individuals, with our fellow men, we are supposed to perform good works and help others as we have opportunity, the text says. And that's the real issue. Who are those things supposed to be accomplished by? God instituted His church to teach the gospel, to take care of brethren, if no one else could do it. All those other things, He's left up to individuals, to people to accomplish those kinds of things. And we must not let the church get distracted. But yes, if you want to volunteer at a homeless shelter, more power to you. If you want to help with the March of Dimes drive, go for it. If you want to send money to the American Cancer Society or the American Heart Association or the American Diabetes Association, feel free to do that. That is your right as an individual Christian. Please, however, do not expect the congregation to be involved in those things because that is not our job. That's not what God has put us here for.